So unless your management really insists because they want to show that you're moving to the recurring business model, if you have the choice, wait for the next iteration of products and then there is much more value there, then you can launch it. Welcome to Subscriptions Scaled, sponsored by Rebar Technology. Join us each week to hear from industry leaders in the subscription space, share their best tips and stories, and learn how you can up-level your subscription business today. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Subscription Scaled. I'm your host, Nick Frederick. My guest today is Stefan Leozu, who is an author, a consultant, a thought leader, all around industrial subscriptions. Stefan, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, excited to dive into this today. We see subscriptions going in a lot of different directions, growing in many different direct-to-consumer, B2B, and of course, industrial. So I'm really excited to dive into it. But why don't we start with telling listeners a little bit about yourself and your background and how you found yourself to become a leader in this space. Well, after 25, 30 years in manufacturing and the industrial world, I uh, fell into pricing and decided to do my PhD in value-based pricing and how to transition companies from cost to value. Mm -hmm. And I became a consultant. And then obviously pricing changes over time as well. You have industrial pricing, you have retail pricing. And then when the uh, subscription pricing boom happened about five years ago, really, I mean, it's been going on for a while, but five years ago, that's when it started exploding. Hey, I looked at this and said, hey, I think new pricing models should be considered by what we call legacy traditional industrial companies because it's a good way to diversify. So. Mm -hmm. But I use, obviously, my knowledge in industry and I use my knowledge in value-based pricing to be able to complete my work when I do work on, in that space and bring all that richness into subscriptions and usage-based pricing models. So when you started focusing on pricing in what was your background, right, industrial and, and manufacturing, how mature was the industry in that sort of approach, that sort of interaction with their customers through subscriptions? Well, I mean, it's still basic. Even in traditional pricing, you look at the industrial space pricing, it's still not fully uh, embraced. Uh, as a matter of fact, in 2019, I published a paper showing that out of the top 500 industrial companies in the U.S., only around 50 to 18% have dedicated pricing teams to tell you that a lot of companies still do pricing somehow without a pricing team or informally. And so you move that into subscription and you look at, most of these companies probably invest millions and millions in digital transformation, right? In the cloud, in software. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. But how many of them do have a pricing team or at least pricing expertise to move towards recurring pricing models? Because at the end of the day, if you don't do already product pricing well, how do you assume that you're going to do subscription pricing well, right? Right, yeah. So what's the obstacle? What's the stigma there? Is it nothing more than that? Is it a fear of somebody losing their job? Why aren't they doing it? Well, they're not doing it because, first of all, pricing is not ingrained in the DNA of these companies. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, they have either cost-plus pricing or competition-based pricing as mm -hmm. their main okay. way of setting the price. Yep. And then they'll use this when they do uh, IoT products or they do IoT solutions, when they do predictive maintenance stuff or they do connected services, they look at cost, or they'll match whatever competition is doing, therefore losing a lot of value on the table. And traditionally, a lot of these companies are not, I would say, they're doing the basics, but they're not excellent in terms of customer insights and uh, pricing research and adopting value-based pricing. So that leads to kind of a, hmm, a lot of me-too subscription, a lot of cost-based pricing in subscription. And 
inherently is not the best success, I will say. Well, thinking about it, though, this is an industry that, well, industrial manufacturing has yeah. been around for a very long time. And from the beginning, they took the approach of it cost me X dollars to make a widget. And I'm going to add 30% on top of that, and that, you know, as my margin, and that's the way I price things, right? They've been doing that for a very, very, very long time. So yeah. getting them to think about that from a value-based perspective, that you're asking them to make a big change, right? It is a big change. I mean, first of all, the first change is you have to be able to calculate your cost of goods sold for a software and a subscription. And that's a big challenge already mm -hmm. because these companies are good at doing product right. cogs and service cogs. But when you get into... Uh, Let's calculate the way we develop software, what goes in the variable and the fixed. And it's a lot of the time it's new to them. And then, yes, at the end of the day, my big forte and my big motto is you need to put value at the heart of your subscription. Mm -hmm. And this is totally new concepts as well for mm -hmm. the marketers and the sales leadership in industrial firms. I mean, obviously, some companies are doing much better than others. And some, are, you know, they have more cash to spend with consultants. So they'll bring lots of uh, external support to do the design of their subscription so that they get it right the first time. But you're right. They come a long way and it's uh, fairly disruptive. And it is one of the major roadblocks is that legacy thinking. My ERPs are all set up for products. Yep. My CRM is all set up and is not really truly uh, gathering all these value data Mm -hmm. So there is a couple big gaps that most of the time prevents them to do subscription the right way. So how do you define value, right? It's a big word and it can mean a lot of different yeah. things to different people. So how do you view it? Well, there's a few definitions. And unfortunately, when you go in industrial companies, they also have various definitions. And there's a difference between financial value, shareholder value, business value, and customer value. And customer value is really about the set of benefits that you bring to your customers through your, your products and solution and subscription and software, whether they're emotional, economic, you know, financial benefits. And then in exchange of that, they're going to pay a price. So big in the definition of value is that exchange between utility and benefit. And, but you have to do the homework, truly understand what is the economic, and emotional and financial value that you bring to your customers with your solution. Mm -hmm. What problems are you solving? How much money are you talking about as far as savings or the gains you create for your customers? And then whether it's uh, the experience, how much value you, you contribute to their business through the experience. And then you're going to look at this and then share it with your customer. And you're going to tell them, here is my price and here is the value associated with it. Mm -hmm. And that turns into a potential ROI. I'm going to save you potentially 250K a year with my subscription that could come from service, upgrades, no capex, all the good things that subscription yeah. bring mm -hmm. in the cloud. And then you're going to pay X. And then you support the justification of your premium, your price, through the value you create. Now, if you do cost plus, it, you don't have that. <laughs> right. It's a bottom up instead of top down, right? Yeah. But you know, if I'm a customer and I'm looking at an offer that's cost plus for an IoT subscription, and IoT has sensor, there is obviously uh, gateways, mm -hmm. there is connectivity and mm -hmm. all that stuff. I can find out the cost of all of this. And then when you sell it to me, let's say $1,000 per sensor, I'm going to say, well, I could build the same solution with 400 bucks. Mm -hmm. Why should I pay you $1,000? And then that's the, a big issue with cost plus. Now, if you do a value-based approach, you're going to calculate the value of insights, the value of analytics, all the things you're going to bring around. And it's not a technology play. It's more of a value play. Mm -hmm. And then you have discussions on the outcome 
less on the technology itself. Yeah, love that definition. And I think that's one of the things that is so powerful about subscription that a lot of people miss is like, you're putting all of the pieces, not just the physical item itself, but all of the things that work around it together into an overall solution. And by the, when you start to break all of those down into this is the value in my product or service, you're starting to make them think of, oh yeah, I've got to hire the analytics people. And oh yeah, I've got to hire the maintenance people to keep this thing running. And oh, I'm going to have to pay for parts and upgrades and everything yeah. else. Yeah, yeah. And you're trying to package that all together into a single thing, right? And that's a big, I would say, explaining this to in the industrial world to finance people, to product people, it's new to them again, mm-hmm. because uh, they're thinking immediately leasing. No, it's not leasing. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> You're not leasing a product. You know, if you do a product as a service, there's a lot more components in the subscription. And when you tell them it's not unusual to see subscription pricing being two, three, four, five times the price of the initial acquisition, right? Mm-hmm. And they say, how can you charge three times the price of the acquisition? Exactly what you said. There is upgrade. I'm future-proofing your solution. You always get the latest, greatest. I replace the equipment if you break it. I'm supporting it. Then customer success and all that stuff. That's why you have to document and quantify that value. So you're trying to get organizations to buy into this model, to this shift. How are you then helping? And you've probably got more time to do that than they have to convince their customers that the way that they've historically bought from them needs to shift or should shift over into the subscription-based model. So what tools do you equip them with in order to have those conversations? Well, I agree with you. At some point, you have to deal with change management with customers. A lot of customers know about subscription. Mm-hmm. And they're going to ask that company, hey, uh, do you only have a CapEx model? Can you sell to me an uh, OPEX model? Mm-hmm. The biggest change management issue is within companies. And because their DNA is really wired to sell in a transactional fashion, and now you're telling them, you know, we're looking at three to five years, and you're actually spreading all these revenues over time, thinking in terms of lifetime customer value, thinking in terms of recurring, thinking in terms, hey, you're not going to get paid up front with that product, you're going to get paid over time. Man, you're challenging so much. Then there is a lot of things that you're changing behind the scene, the way you do legal contracts, the way your IT needs to be set up and connected, the way you manage your sales force and the sales force compensation, the role mm. description. Yeah. You know, you need to set up customer success, you know, which is, they think it's customer support and you have to explain to them <laughs> the whole different function. Yeah. So there's a fair amount of heavy duty convincing internally, although they're all coming in and say, hey, we need to do subscription, they have no idea what's behind the scene that needs to be done. So it's a little bit of, a, obviously, a lot of education up front and be able to ask them to read a few things mm-hmm. <laughs> before we get into the project. And this is what I put together, all these case studies and that beautiful book so that they have a roadmap for them to follow. Otherwise, it's just a bit disruptive for them. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's go there. For anyone who is listening, maybe hasn't read your books yet, can you walk yeah. through like a transformation, an example, a case study, you know, yeah. at a high level where you took them from maybe ground zero or somewhere at the bottom and walk them through that transformation. Yeah, so originally we start, obviously it all depends on the setup. Do you have a, is that a a brand new subscription and an offer you want to launch or is that an offer to an existing customer base? All that stuff will vary. uh, But we spend quite a bit of time from understanding customers, doing prioritization of end use, uh, looking at which verticals are the most appropriate, doing customer segmentation, with a digital lens, who's the, the ideal customer profile, all the things that you would do in a 
traditional subscription, except mm-hmm. it's not done very well, generally speaking, or in a very excellent way in industrial companies. So you have to beef that up. Once you have that, then you have your segmentation, your ideal customer profile. We move quickly into the discussion of what is it that you're trying to sell? How is the offer designed? And there, as we start discussing customer needs by segment, how do they purchase things? What's the value metric they have in mind? And we start looking at the offer itself. What's in the offer? What's core? What's non-core? And what's the value of all these components? Mm-hmm. Assuming they have already an idea. Then we move. The hardest part is to do a value analysis. What are you replacing? What's the customer problem you're solving? And then going deep into the economic calculations. How much savings? You know, if you tell them, well, I'm going to say, I'm going to reduce, uh, increase the productivity on an oil rig. Well, let's calculate it. How do you calculate productivity on an oil rig? Well, number of engineering hours times the average engineering rate. So we go deep in the calculations to come up what's called a value pool and to identify, okay, what I intend to sell brings a lot of differentiation value. And here's a ballpark number. We have five value drivers and we can save the customer a million dollars a year. And then there is all these extra emotional contributors as well. Mm-hmm. That's a big number, obviously, but it's a number we have to know. Is there a lot of value or are we a me too? And that's essential to understand versus yeah. competition. Yeah. yeah. Then we go back into the packaging. You know, now that I know there is value, now that I know how the offer is set up, we decline from packaging to modeling to structure of pricing. So it's a project probably lasts about 60 days, 60 to 90 days, depending on how fast the customer can work out and also do they have some data. And it's quite 80% practice, 20% theory, but sometimes you have to train them on basic foundational concepts. Do you find that most of your clients, the projects that you work on, they know they need to do this and they're like sincerely trying to figure out how to do it? Or is it more reluctant of, yeah, we've been doing it this way forever. I'm not sure that going subscription is even right for us. Well, sometimes we have, don't have a choice. It's a mandate from uh, management okay. saying we need to move to subscriptions. Mm-hmm. So uh, then I said, well, okay, let's start with the most promising ideas you have. Now, remember that, again, most companies in the world are doing some form of digital transformation. Mm-hmm. So because of that, they either have a digital platform they're working on, they have a subscription, they have a connected services, some IoT, some predictive maintenance, you name it. APIs, apps, then I tell them, let's look at the innovation pipeline. Let's look at something that you think is fairly differentiated. And we start with this. The key is to start with something. Now, if it's an explorative discussion, if you don't know if you're going to do it, uh, then it's a little bit of more of a bit of groundwork because you have to convince them to do it. But I think right now, so far in the digital transformation tsunami, I would say companies know they have to do something I would say not in subscription, in the recurring format, Mm -hmm. whether it's usage, outcome, or it's uh, subscription. Yeah. Do you find that the executive sponsors of these projects tend to come from the finance side? Like they know they need to switch to this model? Does it come from product and marketing guys or the CEO? Where do you see it being driven from? Well, I've seen driven by IT and IT and product management working together. Uh, A lot of the time calls from IT, hey, uh, I don't know how to do this. And it comes from maybe they have to buy a billing software for subscription. Mm-hmm. And then they have to put an entitlement solution. And, yep. But then you ask them the question, hey, who's doing the packaging? And then they say, well, <laughs> you know, I was told I need to buy this. Most of the time, it'll be a mandate or it'll be some kind of a business management, general management, or even marketing, CMO. They, we need to have options for our customers. We need to uh, differentiate versus competition and move to a different 
business model because we're getting commoditized. So they're trying to uh, disrupt a little bit of their go-to-market by expanding their horizon as well because sometimes customers don't have the capex and they can't afford their solution. So mm-hmm. they say, here, there are some options. So I would say it's 50-50 from technical side and from the business side as far as the championing. It's easier when, frankly, I, it was surprising that it was easier to do the work with IT and technical people than sometimes with marketing and finance because uh, it's more straightforward with the technology side. Yeah, yeah. it's a little counterintuitive, but uh, interesting. Well, I would imagine that because they wired in technology, they understand changes, you know, because they went through the ERP waves and the CRM waves, and they know that if you're going to do something like this, there is a reason for it. But a lot of the time, marketing and product management, they don't, yeah, I said, you know, why should I do a subscription? I'm going to lose a little money. I'm going to disrupt. I'm going to cannibalize my sales. Then I have to train the salespeople. So you have to convince them and it's okay. You're really changing the way they're working. Do you see the, the average transformation being like completely flipping over their product-based approach over to a subscription, like every line of business all at once? Do you see them taking it line by line, maybe product by product, or do they for a time offer both? and just kind of give customers the choice and see where they lean over time? Well, that's a good question. I think that's the biggest uh, and the most fundamental difference between B2C subscription and industrial subscriptions. You can't go in and tell 3M or tell Caterpillar, all your sales will be in subscription. (laughs) I mean, that's unrealistic. And I've written quite a bit, uh, check my profile on uh, Industry Week. You'll see that I'm writing on this. Not 100% of the industrial products will be sold through subscription. As a matter of fact, not many companies do pure product as a service or equipment as a service transformations because of the heavy impact on CapEx. So they'll mm-hmm. do software and digital solution around the product okay. you know, to complement the product. Yep. So what I tell these companies is it's more about managing a hybrid business model or portfolio mm-hmm. of business models without confusing the customer base with a great segmentation and avoiding cannibalization. And inherently... Uh, there's going to be a vast majority of sales which will still be transactional. But around these transactions, now you're offering maintenance contracts, service contracts in a recurring format, software to support the product in a subscription in the cloud Mm -hmm. or on-premise, digital solutions, APIs. So you're really augmenting your product and equipment or machinery offering. And that leads to potentially 10, 15, 20% of sales being in a recurring format. And that's Usually the magic number is between 20 and 30%. Unless you're in pure high-tech like a Cisco or hardware uh, servers where that is more 70 to 80%, hardware as a service, network as a service. But in a traditional heavy manufacturing industrial, 20 to 30% is already good as far as moving things in subscription and usage space. Yeah. Well, what you said there, I mean... Clearly, the software that goes around some of these physical products makes all the sense in the world to sell through a subscription. Do you see them also offering the physical component itself through subscription? And is that, do you view that more like a lease or do you see that as being maybe packaged differently so that it comes across as one single subscription? Yeah, so a lot of it has been written around equipment as a service, machinery as a service. And you look at in practice what's being done, there's not that many companies that will do this. Okay. Uh, generally speaking, other industries have done, but they completely take over the assets. And then you look at power plants, for example. It was not a subscription, but it was like, I'll take the assets, it's pure outsourcing. 
I'll sure. take it over. I'm in full control. And then you're going to pay me per kilowatt produced or you name it. But mm-hmm. it's more either you go fully transactional or fully outcome-based where you take over the assets. Equipment as a service is you're looking at a lot of risks that are attributed to the machine and, and the bundle itself, the system. Then you got to look at financing, which is typically either releasing or remember you're carrying that finance, that the value of the assets in your books. And a lot of companies say, I don't want to carry that. I want to sell it <laughs> and I want to be paid. So banks are creating financial instruments now for subscription, which are different from leasing. Yeah. So you look at the financing of the uh, equipment as a service, you look at the insurance, the risk mitigation. So it's a whole, it's a complex package. And this is, I believe, why companies don't do that very often. And you see maybe in agriculture, smart ag, you see it in power, maybe some machinery, machine cutting, you start seeing some usage-based pricing model, which is purely usage-based, but it's still nascent. Interesting. So I'm curious, how are banks and those that typically would have financed straight leases viewing this differently? What, what products are they bringing to the market to, to work you know, under this new model? Well, so I'm not an expert in banking, but I know some banks are doing that. Uh, I was exposed to some of the products by BNP Paribas in France okay. that have recognized the need to come up with different financial instruments. I'm not an expert in finance, but it's the same with insurance companies. Uh, you know, you look at uh, IoT and the sheer amount of uh, products that are out there in the IoT format. Can you insure the assets for mm-hmm. detection precision or because you're selling downtime prevention? What if you don't detect it? What happens? So I think there is a big market for financing and insurance. I don't know how it looks because there is a, definitely that uh, accounting discussion there behind it. Mm-hmm. But again, I'm not a financial expert. So it's interesting though because it's, it's a future. And that's the big impediment to industrial companies like moving the equipment as a service format. Well, yeah, and not just how they bring it to market, but who they're selling to, I think is yeah. probably going to change too. They used to go to the end consumer of the product to work out a, a financing package for that, let's just say it was a bulldozer or something like that. And now, who are they now serving? Is it actually the manufacturer? Is it a dealer? Where's that shifting? Well, look at Siemens. Siemens is a huge company. They do have a financing arm inside Siemens. Yeah. And I'm assuming this is for the reason, okay, uh, we're going to come up with all these disruptive smart city infrastructure as a service and all these software companies. But at the end, we may have to have financing ourselves because maybe the creativity out there or the availability of new financial instruments is not there. Yeah. So, but again, you look at GE Capital, you look at Ford, they have a financing arm. So mm-hmm. it shouldn't be new for these companies. But that's a shift for them too, right? Yeah. In how they're coming to market or how they're, I guess, distributing capital or... Yeah. And it depends on how you look at it, but that's a shift for them too. Do you focus on those financing arms as well, or do you stay more focused on the kind of the industrial and sales side? Well, I'm helping them designing a subscription and launching it. And then uh, obviously we discuss that eventually gets to a CFO and okay. the vast majority of them are equipment sold up front. And then the software comes in a subscription format okay. or the service. Again, very rarely uh, will, unless, you know, your products only cost $100, which is a different few but when you're talking about a tractor or a $100,000 machine, it's a big, we call that swallow the fish. I call that swallow the whale in the industrial market because it's, mm-hmm. it's a big pill to swallow. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about the books. You've written a couple of books on pricing specifically, and yeah. your, I think it's your latest one is on the industrial subscription economy. Yeah. 
walk us through what led you to, uh, to, to write a book and kind of give us an overview of what they focus on. You know, I wrote about 12 books. So uh, my 2018 books is called Monetizing Data. Yeah. And this is what I started really being interesting in how you get the data out of all these connected items and how do you put that into some kind of a value prop and then how do you price, right? But I didn't put a lot of uh, emphasis on subscription. I showed subscription as an option. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then fast forward four years after working with the industrial companies, I was like, wow, I need to write a book on how to do this because they just don't know how to do it. So mm-hmm. the industrial subscription economy is a book focused only at industrial manufacturing companies that want to make a transition, that want to launch a good uh, portfolio of subscriptions. And it's a cookbook. This is what you do at every step of the sequence. And then I published, uh, when you buy the book, you get an ebook with 100 case studies. I researched about 100 companies that did that very well. Mm-hmm. You know, the Hilties and the Siemens, the ABBs and Honeywell. All these companies have launched subscription. Some of them are successful, others not so much. Mm-hmm. And I pretty much bring all the richness of B2C and adapt it for industrial so that they don't have to reinvent the wheel. They know exactly what to do from all the benchmarks out there. So it's very practical. <laughs> okay. I'm curious, bringing practices from DTC over to industrial, what doesn't translate? Like what works in DTC subscriptions that doesn't work in industrial? Is there anything? Yeah. So the rule of 40, for example, coming from the SaaS, rule of 40 in industrial companies is not going to fly. You got to make money. So the KPIs, when you do a dashboard for your subscription, it's going to be a hybrid set of KPIs coming from SaaS and coming from the traditional legacy finance. So you really have to adapt that. Also, how you build portfolio, how do you connect your digital solution to the existing hardware? So, I mean, it's not radically different, but one of the issues that I had when I was on the receiving end of people talking to me about subscription, they were purely talking in terms of B2C. And they were telling me, yeah, transactions, are, your ownership is dead. Everything is moving to subscription. And I told them, you know, don't go talk to my boss like this because he's going to throw you out the window because <laughs> we're still going to sell radars. We're still going to sell products. Uh-huh. Now, how do we complement things? So the language is different. You know, the horizon is different. The lifetime value of customers is different. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these industrial companies have tremendous install base. So the potential is humongous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe talk a little bit about some of those metrics that are different. I would expect in industrial, lifetime value is going to be huge, right? You you tend to have these customers for a really, really long time compared to the average direct-to-consumer BDC. But are there other metrics that you find are just drastically different from one to the other? No. So, you know, I think it's it's a balanced dashboard. So you, you want to see what comes from the industrial. We still want to see sales growth and gross margin. Some of these maybe EBIT which in a lot of startups or subscription business, they don't care about EBIT, they just care about sales. And then on the subscription side, they look at the net retention rate, churn, ARR, you know, annual contract value. Because it depends on how you set up your sales team within that industrial business, you still need to change metrics for compensation. So you're going to have to track two sets of criteria, two sets of KPI, one to make the bosses happy and finance and products, and one to be able to run the business if you sell software as a SaaS company, right, within the existing portfolio. Now, you'll see a lot of uh, industrial companies also set up separate companies like Airbus, Boeing, Thales. They do have separate companies only doing SaaS. Really? Right? So that's easier. Yeah. And I've seen a, because, you know, you bring that inside and maybe the industrial culture is going to suffocate mm-hmm. a SaaS startup, for example. Mm-hmm. And also a lot of these companies are acquiring a lot of uh, successful startups. Yeah. So they keep them separate. 
Makes sense. And that's the way to do it. Then you don't have to worry about completely and um, you know integrating and so. But still, at the end of the day, you look at potentially uh, Navblue, uh, which is one of the software companies that Airbus has, and they're still going to track gross margin and EBIT, mm-hmm. although they are a SaaS company because they're owned by Airbus and uh, the KPIs are going to change. You know, it's just the nature of the beast. That is really interesting, though. A company is that size saying, yeah, I know these things are fundamentally different, so I'm going to separate this company off from this one. But it sounds like there's still a lot of cross-pollination there. Oh, yeah, we still do very well. But you're working in, you got a foot on the SaaS world and a foot on the industrial world. And I think you have to learn from both. It sometimes is more of an adjustment for the founders who get acquired because they have now to maybe slow the pace of growth and be careful about cash protection and because they're owned by someone else. Mm -hmm. And the capital is not going to be that available. Yeah. But smart people make it work. And I have no issue with this. <laughs> Do you see business valuation as being one of the key drivers? Because I mean, we all know, you know, subscription businesses, I can't speak for industrial, but I know in direct to consumer can be three, four, five times, maybe even more that of a more, typical yeah. transactional business at 10 times. Yeah. Is that the same yeah, for industrial? Mean- you look at the valuation in the manufacturing world, anywhere between 7 and 15, you're happy. 15, you're super happy. Okay. But it's more around 8, 10. You look at a SaaS, you go up to 100 times sales. Now, the key is, it's because you're putting profitable growth at the heart of the company, then inherently, you're going to slow the pace of uh, growth. So when you acquire a company like this, the valuation gets closer to a semi-industrial with a software base, and it's going to reduce the multiples. Now, I've seen industrial companies positioning their companies much more like software companies to increase their multiple on the stock market. You know? <laughs> and a good example is Honeywell. You look at Honeywell, and although they're doing a lot of hardware and industrial products, all they talk about is software and digital transformation and innovation in the, you know, the platforms. And it's brilliant because their software sales is not more than 3 to 5%, but they speak like a software company. So the analysts are looking at this, oh my God, the multiples are going up. So Siemens is doing the same. So, and I think it's right because companies are realizing that the future is going to be much more in software in the SaaS format yeah. than uh, yeah. products. Interesting. That's just the, by the way they talk about their business can yeah. increase the value of it. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Are you seeing others doing the same or following suit? Well, I, no, it's most American companies, I would say, on the stock market here will be much more attuned to software and digital transformation, at least at using this to uh, send the signals to Wall Street. I would say probably in Europe, they're more traditional and as far as their messages, right? Yeah. But I don't have scientific data on that. (laughs) Yeah. It's just a gut feel. Yeah. Well, give us a little insight into where you see this going. You said there's still a lot of opportunity in the industrial space. It's still relatively immature compared to other subscription industries. But what does this look like in five years? Is there a lot more of it or is this going to be a slow uphill climb? Well, first of all, there's still a big portion, about half of the software in industrial companies that is not in a subscription format. Okay. So where typically 75% of software is in the cloud and SaaS, it's probably close to 40 to 50% in the industrial space. Okay. And there's a lot of work to be done. So they might do subscription on-premise, but some companies are still moving to the cloud slowly but surely. So that is going to be a huge okay. potential for subscriptions. Second of all, I would say equipment as a service, product as a service, were just at the very beginning. And I would assume that once the financial instruments and the insurance instruments are ready to support them, it could be a quite a big opportunity for the industrial space to move to subscriptions. And it's all going to depend on the economic situations that 
sure. the right time, right? Sure, yeah. Right now we're entering again in a, maybe potentially a recession. So everybody's going to protect cash. Maybe subscription are going to be more in favor during the next right. three to five years, depending on how bad the interest rates are getting. Mm-hmm. But the potential is humongous. And this is why you see most of the billing platforms, the subscription billing platform and companies trying to move to manufacturing mm-hmm. because it's a big potential. Yeah. But it's also different than selling to B2B SaaS companies. Yep. So <laughs> yeah. you need to think about your go-to-market. It's a bit different. Absolutely. It's definitely different. Well, there's some argument for direct-to-consumer, consumer-level products from a subscription perspective are a little bit saturated. There's a lot of talk of looking at all of the subscriptions that consumers have and they're canceling some. And yeah, that's happening to a certain degree. But yeah, you can understand that the pivot for some of them to yeah. looking at other verticals that are exploring similar models. and. Of course, that makes sense. Yeah. But at the end of the day, for me, you still need to have a solution that solves customer problems, brings differentiation to the user, and creates value. And that's what I tell all my clients or the people I talk to. At the end of the day, if you learn something from me is do things based on value. If it doesn't bring value, kill it. Don't Mm -hmm. do it. And recently, a client of mine, I told them, don't do the subscription because not only do you have to pay more commission to your dealers, your trade channels, but it doesn't bring much more value to you. You dilute your margins and you got to put a customer success team in place. It's not the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Someone has to go and support the software in sight. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I, I recommend it. Don't do it. Wait for the next innovation and then do it. Really? So yeah. you have situations where you're like, this is not for you or this is not the right time. It doesn't make sense. There's no value. Yeah. So unless your management really insists because they want to show that you're moving to the recurring business model. If you have the choice, wait for the next iteration of products, and then there is much more value there, then you can launch it. Mm -hmm. Wow. How is that message received when you have to deliver it? Well, we do the work together, so they realize it. We look at the the pricing levels, the margin levels. and come to that conclusion together? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the amount of support they have to put in place and the amount of extra commission they have to pay distributors. Because, I mean, if there is no value, how do you incentivize your distributors to go sell it? (laughs) It's like, right? And then I have to do all that work. Nope. (laughs) To that point, are you seeing more interest from distributors and resellers in this sort of model? Or do they love the old transactional, I sell it, there's margin, I get paid today in a a lump sum? Well, I think everybody gets it, that subscription are inevitable. But again, it's not for everyone. So generally speaking, you're going to have very sophisticated distributors and trade channels, trade partners, and they're already doing a lot of things. So what I tell manufacturers is don't wait for them to do it. You have to do it with them or before them, because if they do it, they own the customer relationship. They own the data. Then all Mm -hmm. you do is transact Mm -hmm. and you remove yourself from the data, which is not the best, right? So um, focus on the right partners, those who are sophisticated, uh, digitally advanced, and do a partnership with them. And some others may not want to do it. Just don't do it with them. Now, there is in the book, I have a whole chapter on uh, how to manage your trade channels, but there is also working relationship you can have with the more reluctant dealers or distributors, it's a matter of bringing them on board one way or the other. Wow. That's interesting to hear. When you're living in the D2C world, that's just not something you have to yeah. think about every day. No, but I do that question quite often. Do I go direct or do I go through my distributor? And for me, mm-hmm. it's a philosophical discussion, but if 100% of your sales are going through distributors, you may be in a pickle if you start bypassing them. Yeah. And it's better to develop a win-win relationship with them sure. than to bypass them because it's going to bite you back eventually. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Well, have you seen 
for the lack of a better term, middlemen who have developed their own, so let's just say the software solution, because they couldn't get the manufacturer to get on board. Yeah. With it, really? Oh, yeah, because they work 20 times faster than manufacturers. I mean, uh, look at a company called Avnet, an electronics distributor. Yeah. The company is billions and billions, and they have a, a whole division on IoT. I don't think they waited for anyone to tell them what to do. And they're already at the forefront of uh, IoT. And, and in a way, they compete against the OEM they buy equipment really? from. Yeah. So if you're a small and medium business today in manufacturing, don't wait for your distributors to do it. There's always going to be someone who's going to put together their brains with some capital and they plant their flag. So first mover advantage in some industrial sectors is still very relevant. Yeah. What do you say when someone comes to you and is like, all of these things I need to shift to this model, the subject matter expertise, the systems, the processes I don't have, like, where do you start with them? Because I'm sure that can feel daunting. Yeah, but you know, you do a project in 90 days, you define it and then you deploy it. And these companies do innovation before. It's not the first time they launched innovation. Now, some of the functions are new, like customer success. We never did customer success before. Just hire someone from customer success. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I help them in the executions in my role I stay on with the execution and I help them executing the program, yeah. training the salespeople, designing uh, compensation. So again, it's, it may be daunting, but it can be done. It's been done hundreds and hundreds of times before. And I show them case studies of companies who have done it very well. Okay. So um, kind of, but you have to reassure them. <laughs> it's not the end of the, of the world. And usually they have things they do already that we don't realize we do. Yeah. Well, if they know they need to do this, but don't know where to start, it sounds like what you're saying is the first call should be to you. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of people qualified, uh, <laughs> but I'm one of them. And I tell them, read my book. And if you still want to do it, <laughs> yeah, call me. There you go. But chances are either the customers is asking for it or their management or investors tell them it's time to get on the bus. Yep. And then they call me and say, okay, let's do it. Let's do it in three months, six months. Remember the timeline, the time spectrum in industrial is not... The D2C or the B2B world, B2C world is a bit slower. Yeah, understandable. Well, speaking of that, if anybody was listening today and piqued their interest or they want to explore this more with you, what's the best channels to get a hold of you? Well, always LinkedIn. Okay. I love LinkedIn. They connect with me. They send me a direct message. I'm very responsive. And on my website, stefanliozu.com, one word, and then they can find my contact information. But LinkedIn is the best way to go. Okay. Or buy the books, or at least start with the books. Or buy the book, The Industrial Subscription Economy, available on Amazon. <laughs> there you go. Are all your books on Amazon? All of them. Okay. All 12 of them. I'm uh, writing number 13 right now. Man, you're a better man than I for writing 12 books. That's a lot. But you've seen it, right? And you're just taking the learnings from having done this and putting it into a book, right? Yeah. But, you know, I'd also I'm trying to help, you know, a lot of the books solve uh, particular issues that the pricing profession as a tough time addressing. So like uh, I have a book called Pricing and the Salesforce. How do you get the Salesforce on board? Okay. So uh, try to help the profession as well. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Well, Stefan, I really enjoyed this conversation. It's been fun to talk about a different area of subscription than we typically cover on this show, but it's one that's got a lot of opportunities. So I trust we'll be having more of these conversations in the future, but thanks again, really appreciate it. Thank you for the time. I appreciate the good discussion. Yes, thanks again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Subscription Scale, sponsored by Rebar Technology. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network.